this is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Lord Kerr. John Kerr is the former head of the British Foreign Service, a former ambassador to the United States, and former permanent representative to the European Union. John, you are widely seen as one of the architects of Article 50, who drafted the wording of Article 50. It seems to me that the EU existed very nicely without an Article 50 clause in it for, for several decades. Why do we have an Article 50 now? <laughs> very good question. And it is quite true that we, we didn't need an Article 50 to permit people to leave the European Union if they wanted to. If you didn't pay the bills, if you didn't come to the meetings, in due course, people would notice that you appear to have left. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think there were three motives. We're talking January 2003 in the convention in Brussels, chaired by uh, President Giscard d'Estaing, representatives of all member state governments and oppositions and the European Parliament and the Commission. And the idea that people had in mind, I think, was that to emphasise, there's a lot of things in the draft treaty we then did that the EU is a voluntary combination of member states. Uh, it has uh, empowered the central institutions to do various things in various areas. Some areas it's given them full powers, and some areas it's given them powers shared with the member states, and some areas it's given them virtually no powers. Uh, and it's all voluntary and can only grow its powers by agreement of all the members. Treaty-based organisation, treaties require unanimity and need to be ratified by everybody. There is, and there always was, an accession clause, and the idea was that it would, uh, it would um, emphasise the voluntary nature of the thing, that you were not tied to your oars, going to an unknown destination, if um, there was also a secession clause. Second thought, uh, uh, symmetry really, matching the accession with a secession procedure immediately following it in the, in the treaty. Third, uh, there was a feeling that, that, I mean, it was came shortly after a period when uh, the, the Austrian government uh, caused some consternation in the wider union with some rather right-wing um, anti-democratic uh, policies. That government disappeared shortly after, but there was the Haider government, and it uh, uh, there was an idea that if a, a member state had its voting rights withdrawn, as what we threatened to do to the Austrians at the time, and there is an article in the treaty which permits that, such a member state might choose to march out in a huff. You might, say, have a, a military coup somewhere in, in the European Union, and that government might break all democratic norms, its, its rights would ever be withdrawn, and it might say, I wasn't prepared to be insulted, and storm out. And really, Article 50 was designed to provide a, a protest for a uh, peaceful, uh, non-disputatious withdrawal. The, uh, it never occurred to me that it might be used by a uh, long-standing Western European democratic member state to uh, withdraw, but as, as it now is. 
I, I think the, um, the, the interesting paradox is the rationale for the two-year time limit for the negotiation, after which, if there's no deal, you're out, was that was designed to, to appease or uh, reassure uh, Eurosceptics saying, uh, there's no way out from this, you are to add your rules. Because at the time, the criticism was that if there was a secession procedure, it would be so prolonged by the institutions that you'd never get out. It would be okay. here to help California. So the reassurance was, after two years, don't worry, maximum of two years, you, if you want to go, go, that's fine. Now, of course, that is being seen in, in, in Britain as uh, an evil way of putting time pressure on the country that wants out. That wasn't at all the motive at the time. OK, that's interesting. So now fast forward to 2017. The Article 50 has been triggered uh, through the actions of uh, Prime Minister May. And already there's, dis there's a dispute between the UK on the one hand and the E27 on the other about, in effect, the sequencing, as, we, as it's now called. The British government, maybe for very good reasons, wants to have a discussion also about the future relationship uh, between itself and the EU alongside discussion about the so-called divorce bill, quote-unquote, residence rights and, and, and even the hard border in Northern Ireland, whereas here, je ne veux pas do, John, Michel Barnier, the European Commission's chief negotiator, and other people like Tusk and Juncker are also saying, no, no, let's do, first of all, the, the, the divorce proceedings, in, in effect, and the only to be then, when we have made sufficient progress, we talk about the future relationship, is that going to be a real standoff, or will there be some accommodation? Uh, I would predict an accommodation. I think that the, the, some of the Commission texts actually are not quite in the spirit of the treaty. The, the treaty says in Article 50, Article 52, that uh, the, uh, the divorce agreement, which is about, as you say, money and uh, acquired, uh, that must be prepared taking account of the framework for the future relationship between the EU and the country that has left. Uh, they, uh, I think uh, Mr. Barnier got it right when he said we ought to start with the money and the rights and the Northern Ireland problem. And uh, once sufficient progress has been made on that, he didn't say once that's all been settled, once sufficient progress has been made on that, then we really ought to look at the framework. I think that's fair enough. I think some of the texts now seem to be saying that there has to be a deal on uh, all the phase one subjects, including the money, before one can uh, look at the framework. I think that can't be right, because the deal has to take account of the framework for the future relationship. That's what the treaty says. So I think the, the Commission's foot, with last week's text, foot is in touch. Uh, but I think it is unrealistic to the British, of the British, not criticising my government, but uh, unrealistic of them to think that they can get very far with discussion on uh, trade or any other form of future cooperation until it is clear that they accept that they are going to honour the commitments that they undertook, that they're going to pay the bill as they check out. Uh, so I think 
both sides are getting this slightly wrong. That is what you would expect on the eve of a big negotiation. Mm. Uh, I think the Commissioner's position is a maximalist position, as you would expect. Mm. I don't really know what the British government's position is, because it hasn't published any documents of the kind that the Commission's been publishing. But I think on, on this point, uh, the British, uh, if they want to make it, have a point that actually there has to be a degree of simultaneity between discussing the framework, not necessarily the detail of the future relationship, and, uh, the, uh, and the divorce. At the risk of maybe oversimplifying rather complex matters, there seem to be three possible scenarios, outcomes. A soft Brexit, a so-called soft Brexit, a so-called hard Brexit, or thirdly, a no-deal Brexit. As we speak now, we're in the middle of May, early May, May the 9th, to be precise, um, Europe Day, how, what do you think is the most likely outcome? I think the most likely of the three is, uh, is no deal. Uh, I think that uh, it is uh, worryingly easy to imagine that the positions on the money stay far apart uh, and that the temperature remains high. It's, it's, I think, rather unwise things were said in this fortnight. I think the the leak of uh, an account of the dinner at number 10 was a mistake and I think that uh, some of the reactions to that leak from the British government were also a mistake. Uh, people might stay in their high houses for quite a long time and uh, it's, it's possible that the British Prime Minister might not feel able to make the kind of concessions, moves towards the Commission position which will be needed to get a deal. So I think there's a sort of 40-45% chance that the whole thing breaks down. Uh, and that is very bad, because that means off to a court of arbitration about the money, and it means uh, a, a, a legal vacuum for companies and individuals. Before we talk about the, the, the repercussion then of a, of a no-deal Brexit, John, I mean, I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that in the House of Laws debate on the triggering article 50, you put the percentage of a likelihood of a no-deal around 30%, is that correct? Now you're saying 40 to 45. What has happened in that intervening period to, to move the figure up to that level? Well, perhaps I'm being um, unduly affected by, by the rhetoric. Uh, I think that for the Prime Minister to say that, um, that uh, member states are intervening in our election is an astonishing statement. I mean, there are no Putins in Berlin or Brussels <laughs> or Paris. Uh, and I think that shows that we're in an election period where people do say odd things. Right, for election purposes. Uh, but for the moment, I would say 45% rather than 30 You're quite right about what I used to say. Uh, the second uh, uh, scenario is uh, that you do get a divorce deal and you get a, uh, some sort of sketchy framework. Uh, I think that's a 25% chance. But if the framework is sketchy, then there is, it's not possible to build a sensible transition agreement. So again, you have a cliff edge and it's a bad scene. And then I think there's a sort of 20% chance that it all goes much better than that, that there is a di agreed divorce deal, that there is a, 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 a fairly thick framework, uh, which enables you to uh, make a a sensible transition arrangement for getting from here to there, uh, even though the detail on things like trade will take years more to negotiate. 
I think that's a sort of 20% chance, and there's a, a, a 10% or 5%. There is still a chance that one goes into extra time, which the, uh, the treaty allows. The, um, you know, it, it is possible to withdraw an Article 15 notification. It is legally possible. There will be a political debate. Mm-hmm. And one might have to pay some sort of political price for wasting everybody's time, but it is it is there. I also think it would be possible to go into extra time if we, for example, were having a second referendum. Uh, the complication of the European Parliament election in the summer of, of 2019 is real, but I think it's, that's uh, manageable. I think there are ways around that. Uh, I I. And I think it is not inconceivable that by 2019, the economic downsides of of, uh, of Brexit on any of the scenarios I've uh, I've mentioned, but particularly the severe and sharp economic downsides of uh, a very hard Brexit uh, or a No Deal Brexit, uh, I think they might be uh, have influenced public opinion, and governments always tend to respond to public opinion. Well, a lot of a lot of talk in the media at the moment uh, in Britain because we're in the middle of this election campaign that about what is the what is the impact of a, a relatively a robust, handsome victory of Mrs May in a month's time in terms of her negotiating hand with the U twenty seven. What is your view? Does that do that make her even more uh, uh, strong minded about going for a hard Brexit, or do you think that will make her more uh, malleable, should we say, in terms of negotiating? Uh, I, yeah, I'm, you're, you're being uh, wicked, Paul. I'm, a, I'm an independent. I have no <laughs> political views at all. I'm a political eunuch, as everybody knows. I sit on the crossbench in the House of Lords. I think that it is absurd to say that the size of the majority, if the Conservatives are returned in the election, will have any effect at all on the negotiating position of the other side. They have just agreed a... a four-page text, and they are about to agree a ten-page text. Detailed text setting out the precise positions on which all 27 member states, all but us, have agreed. Mm. Now, if the majority that Mrs May has is 20 or 40 or 60 or 100 or 200, that will not change a word of that position. Mm. Uh, I I also disagree with a, a second theory which is knocking around, particularly in The Economist magazine where they argue that the larger Mrs May's majority, the easier it will be to compromise because she will be able to uh, deal with small rebellions of Brexiteers in the Conservative Party in the House of Commons. I think history shows that's not right. Mr Major's problems with the Maastricht Treaty only started after he won the 1992 election. In the six months beforehand, the Maastricht Treaty was phenomenally popular in the country and particularly in the Conservative Party where the UN election was coming up and they were all sticking together. After an election, particularly if a big majority, you have a whole lot of people who think they should be in the government and you can't put them all in the government. And those that are not in the government tend to look for something to do and that's the moment when you start getting rebellions. So I think it, it... I think there will be more Brexiteers in the House of Commons the larger the, com- the Conservatives' majority. Uh, I think the, the new MPs will tend to be uh, fairly keen Brexiteers, partly because they will have been elected on ex-UKIP votes. Mm. 
And I think there'll be a whole lot of people who will think they're much smarter than some people in the government, and they don't understand why they're not in the government themselves. And uh, so I would expect real trouble, and I think there's an amount of trouble, if real trouble in the scenario that Mrs May wants to compromise. I don't know if she does or not. Yeah. But in that scenario, I think the bigger the majority, the bigger the problem. Well, let's talk a bit about E27 before we finish off. I mean... Um, I think by common agreement, um, there's been remarkable discipline and, and unity amongst E27 in terms of nobody breaking ranks, until, at least until now, uh, and steadfastly saying we will all work be, be, you know, alongside Donald Tusk, Jean-Claude Juncker, Michel Barnier, maybe much to the government's uh, um, chagrin. Do you think that solidarity, that discipline will hold during the course of the two-year negotiation timetable? Well, on the Article 50 agenda, uh, yes, I... I I think it will. I mean, the change in France from Hollande to Macron will uh, produce a harder French position, in my view. Marginally harder. Uh, I think it, the position may start changing if the British manage, as they, they should be doing, in my view, to widen the agenda. If it's all about the money we owe or don't owe, uh, I see them all sticking together because they countries that are net beneficiaries from the European Union's budget uh, want to go on uh, receiving that money and the countries who are net payers to the European Union's budget don't want to have to pay more. So I think the, the one thing that unites them the Poles want a big budget, the Germans want a small budget, but the one thing they don't want any change to is uh, they want for the rest of this budgetary period, which is takes up to 2020, they don't want uh, to have to either give up their receipts or pay in more. So I think complete solidarity will last all the way through. On the wider agenda, what sort of arrangements for cooperation on foreign policy, on defence, on environmental policy, on energy policy, on uh, anti-terrorism and so on? I think the British ought to be making a series of very reasonable propositions about how they want to remain close to the EU we've left. I believe Mrs May does. I believe that, that uh, we have made a negotiating error in that there is no paper on the table in which we set our ideas for a framework for the future which would enable and institutionalise close cooperation closer than the EU has of anybody else. You say scenarios, but is there time to roll back on that? Could they produce a paper in the next few days to kind of make up for the lost time? I personally think the sooner the better. Uh, but I, uh, if we are going to break down the commission position that you have to talk about the money first, if we are going to make my legal point about the framework, then we ought to have a draft framework on the table. We ought to say, yes, we're happy to talk about the money, but we'd also like to talk about this because that's what the treaty says we should be doing. And I think it is, it would not be difficult to turn uh, the good bits of Mrs May's Lancaster House speech and Mrs May's um, Article 50 letter into pillars for a framework for a close future relationship. At that point, uh, I think you might start to see some fissures appearing in the other side because on uh, issues like defence, for example, 
And I really hope that, that doesn't become transactional. We have a treaty commitment to NATO and we should be as keen to defend the Latvians and the Estonians if they're in trouble, mm. uh, whether we're in the EU or not, and I hope we will be. But nevertheless, it would improve the negotiating atmosphere on points that are difficult for the EU that we are making if we were also saying very clearly what I've just said, that we want to retain a very close relationship and this in no way affects our willingness to come to the assistance of the Latvians and Lithuanians. On, on terrorism, countries that have a serious problem with terrorism or with major refugee uh, communities, uh, I think that uh, uh, a generous British approach, which is in our own interest, mm -hmm. Uh, because you know, terrorism knows no frontiers. We need to be working together. If we spelt out how we envisage working together and gave some sort of commitment that we wanted to do so, I think that might, um, that might change the atmosphere. So uh, maybe 45% was too despondent. Okay, we'll see. One final question, John. Um, we haven't talked much about, at all about the transition phase. I presume the that would only occur in the context of a soft or hard Brexit. The no-deal Brexit presumes there's no transition phase now, or implementation phase, as Mrs May calls it. Um, you said earlier on, at the very beginning, actually, that the, the reason for the two-year deadline in Article 50 was based on the premise so you couldn't be accused of uh, giving the impression that the, the discussions of withdrawing would drag on forever. But people are saying now, of course, that the transition phase could drag on. I mean, it's obviously a, it's a stepping st stone towards full, full exit withdrawal from the EU, but nonetheless... Theoretically, the transition phase could last quite a long time, during which time, of course, we'd be, in effect, still members of the European Union. Is there a danger in, in political terms that it won't be, won't be doable, either on either side of, of the channel, because it would be seen as just a protracting the agony? Uh, I think uh, the transition is... I mean, there are various kinds of transition, uh, but I don't both really think we will still be members of the European Union during a transitional phase. I think we would have left, and therefore, because we made it so important, we would no longer be uh, required to respect free movement of persons. Uh, but I think that, that it is possible to imagine that we might have, for particular kinds of cooperation, possibly even for the single market, we might have a, a country membership where we had no votes on, on the rules of the club, but agreed to apply the rules of the club where we had no judge in the Court of Justice but a plea agreed to accept the Court of Justice as the umpire for a transitional period while we tried to develop uh, trade relations with other countries around the world. So I, I think it's the transition really comes after okay. you've left. And I think we will need something because it will take, if we leave in uh, 2019, it will be at least three or four years before we have uh, agreed the detail of the future trade relationship in every sector with the European Union and before we have uh, developed new trade agreements with third countries. I know you say at the end, if we leave in 2019, but we'll leave it there, John Kerr. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs>